5:14 through 6:1. Second Corinthians 5:14 through 6:1. For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on we recognize no man according to the flesh, Even though we've known Christ according to the flesh, yet we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were entreating through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Thank you, Bill. And thank you, men. That was, a, that was a wonderful tribute and just uh, lifting our hearts towards that. First and foremost, did you guys see that storm? <laughs> How many of you guys got hit with hail and just pummeled? Okay, man. We, we, we're like sitting out. <laughs> hindsight's 2020. Um, the thunder's rolling for like three hours out here in Palisadro, and I was like, man, this is awesome. We, like, Friday nights, we watch movies, so, like, the kids were watching a movie, and, like, I just want to get outside, so finally, after the movie, we were out, and <laughs> I take all the kids, and we're sitting in lawn chairs with umbrellas, sitting out watching. Probably not the smartest idea. We were under a tree, though. Um, <laughs> now, there wasn't really, like, anything striking down around us, or hail, or anything out in Palisadro, at least where we were. But man, what a display. Um, there were some cool pictures. Um, Dan, you took this, right? Yeah, so my brother took this out his back window. I know you guys took good ones too. Just like that thing was just like churning uh, continually. That was out over Palisadro. These were some of the ones that, was, that were online. This one was up on uh, Record Searchlight. I don't know who took this. Roxy Mueller took the one on the right. Uh, we're friends with her. She put it up on her Facebook. But I've just never seen anything like that, out, at least in this area. This is another Roxy took. I thought it was just cool. Um, but just, I know you guys were seeing probably a lot of pictures and things like that. When I, I see stuff like that, my first instinct just is to glorify God. It's just, wow. Um, 
And, and what's interesting this time is that was kind of my reflex. And then, like, it was almost, I think the Spirit of God just whispered in my heart of, like, oh, buddy, you don't know. <laughs> That's just a cloud. You should see my glory. And, and just, I mean, when you think about something like this, it's just a fluff of cotton candy in his hand. Um, and it actually looked really tasty, uh, cotton candy. But just, just how great he really is, it should leave us feeling pretty small. I mean, when we feel so small compared to a cloud, just how great um, his power really is. Um, so I, I couldn't really help but start there. But let me uh, just open us in prayer, and then we'll dive in today. Father, you are great, so great. There's no words we can have to explain how great you are or attribute that to you, but you love to hear it in our feeble language that we give you, so we give it to you. You are great. And uh, we honor you today. We ask that you just excite our hearts about what your heart is excited about. I pray that as I speak, they can see you and we can just glory in you. Thank you for your word and for guiding us through it. In your name we pray, amen. So uh, where we left off last week, um, and actually even these last three weeks, we looked last week a lot at our individual identity and who we are in Christ. And um, we, if you guys have been here, we've kind of been going through Ephesians chapter 2 and uh, been looking at this past, present, future kind of approach at it. Uh, it's the approach I felt led to, to go with. You could probably take a few different approaches. But we started with who we were, um, who we are, and now today we're looking at um, who we are being made to be. But um, last week we, uh, we left off, if, you, if you're not in Ephesians 2, go ahead and turn there. We left off after verse 10 in uh, chapter 2, which leaves with this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we kind of left off with almost this cliffhanger of, um, okay, so in Christ we are this. Uh, we see where Christ is seated, where he is, we are, we're with him. Um, but then it's kind of this idea of God has some work for you to do, and that's where we left off. And that's where we're picking up. This um, past, present, future approach is one that we've taken through the book. Um, but this last week I was reading, and um, I don't know if everyone does it this way, but when I preach, I, I try to, I'm always trying to learn and stuff, but it's really good. Uh, whenever I, I know I'm going to be speaking, um, it really just motivates me to dive in more. So I start just pouring through um, books and audiobooks and stuff and just try to listen to what God is teaching me so that I can hear what he wants to teach Oak Grove. And one of the books I was reading this last week um, brought up this aspect I hadn't really thought about just as far as focusing on the cross. And it was this kind of same past, present, future approach that we're talking about here. And um, when we look at this aspect of in the past, we were, we were walking according to the course of the world. That's what uh, the early part of chapter two says. We walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That was then, right? That's how we walked. And when, um, when we looked at the cross, we were running to the cross. And so that's kind of the first aspect of it is, is looking that in the past, we saw the cross, we ran towards it. Um, what's interesting is I think there's a lot of uh, verbiage today uh, that I've just been carrying forward for quite a while that is still kind of focusing on going back to the cross as Christians after we've been believers for a while. Lead me to the cross. I come to the cross kind of thinking. And that's not bad. 
we need to go back to the cross to be reminded. But the, the fascinating thing that this book highlighted was that the vast majority of the New Testament writings really talk about running away from the cross, that it's something after we're saved that we need to move past. The cross needs to be something that we died and we were raised to life. The emphasis of the New Testament is not just on coming and dying at the cross. It's on coming back to life and living in him and what comes next. Throughout this series, we've been um, kind of going back and forth with Romans chapter 5 and 6. Go ahead and turn over there because in Paul's thought process over there, he carries forward this same thought. Some of these verses we've touched on as we've gone along, um, but I'm just going to touch on kind of his conclusion in, in that section, at least in Romans chapter 6. Starting in verse 8, he says, If we have died with Christ, we believe that we will live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin once and for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin in the past and now alive to God in Christ Jesus. So based on that, he exhorts them, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of righteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will not have dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. What he's saying here is, hey, the cross needs to be in your past. So you've got to move forward. You've been raised with Christ. So why are you letting sin have dominion over you anymore? It needs to be in the past. So this same kind of approach, I thought it was just kind of maybe another side of the same coin of, of looking back, present, future. But the idea that we're moving forward is what I want you guys to capture. That as we are saved, we're called to walk according to these good works that God has presented before us. And this is all this post-cross kind of thinking that we're looking at. Throughout um, the, the New Testament, you see a couple times where, where um, Paul uh, talks about boasting in the cross of Christ, so much so that uh, it almost seems opposite of what I've just said. Uh, in Galatians 6.14, he says he's chosen to boast in nothing but the cross. And in 1 Corinthians 1, he said, uh, verse 23, he chose to preach Christ crucified and to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So in, in one sense, it almost seems like he's going the opposite, that he's, he's saying, no, we should only talk about the cross. But what he's, if you go throughout the New Testament, you read other places, he was boasting in other things. He was boasting in the work of God. He was boasting in what God was doing in the lives of those believers. He was glorying in that. So what does it mean? I think it simply means that the cross is the foundation for everything. Everything builds upon that. Everything builds. The cross is the starting place. And, and everything has to be built upon that foundation. And even as we look at chapter 2 today, we see that Christ is the cornerstone of this building that we are being built into. And he is the foundation upon we, which we are built. So in one sense... Everything is built on the cross. Everything does go back to the cross. But what I'm trying to say is we need to build. We do move forward, keeping in mind the foundation that we build on. We build into something else. So there's a little bit of a side note, but I, I wanted us to kind of see that because um, as we look at chapter 2, I'll just tell you today how I'm going to preach this. I'm not going to read through verse by verse. 
I'm going to assume you have the text in front of you uh, and that you're kind of looking at this block as well, and hopefully you've even had a chance to read it this week, but we're looking at verses 11 through 22 as a whole today. We will kind of work through it in order, but some of these themes, like what I just talked about, um, come you know, at different sections throughout this. We're looking at this block as a whole. So in chapter 2, um, if you look there, verse 11 starts with this big therefore which is essentially another way of just saying everything that's been discussed so far is the foundation for what I'm about to talk about. So he's going he's gonna to take the logic process that he's been working through in his letter so far, and he's going to use it to explain something that he wants, wants us to see. So what's been discussed? We were dead in our sins and our trespasses. We were enemies with God. We were entirely outside or entirely outside of anything on our part, Christ redeemed us. That was his work. He decided to do that in spite of anything we could do. He decided to redeem us. These are all things that we've seen. God showed us immeasurable grace and kindness in saving us. That was verse 7 that we looked at last week. Not only this, he showed us immeasurable power by raising us with Christ. That was back in chapter 1. And we have, we have all the blessing and benefit and reward of Christ being in him and seated at the Father's right hand. Finally, the last one that we looked at last week, we are his workmanship created for good works that he's prepared for us for years to come. So these are all things, the therefore, these are all lumped in together. These are the things that he's using to build his case. A couple more things. Um, who we are. We are in Christ. This is chapter 1 mostly, things that we looked at before. We are chosen, chapter 1, verse 4. We're adopted, chapter 1, verse 5. We're forgiven, chapter 1, verse 7. We're blessed, if you look at 1, verse 3 and 6. We're loved in 1, 4 and 6. And we are seated above all powers, everything on earth, everything. We have the authority, the seating that Christ has as well. So, in light of all this, that's where this therefore comes from. This is who you are. This is who you are in Christ. This is your identity. Your individual identity is resting in this. We're going to see that this isn't just an individual identity, though, and we're going to see how this leads into what we're going to be made together. Um, but I just want to emphasize, as we've talked about all along, um, and really it's the title of this whole series, all of this is for his glory. Everything that he's doing, whether it was in the past when he was made to be sin on the cross for us, whether it's in the present where he is now seated and whether it's what we're going to look at next, it's all for his glory. What we're being made to be together is for his glory. So that's kind of what we're going to be looking at next. So starting in um, this first block, which is verses 11 through 16, he dives into this discussion about being one new man. And we see um, he's talking about this enmity between Jew and Gentile. But before we get into that, again, I'm going to keep saying this today over and over. We look at the aspect that um, as we look at what we are going to be, we are looking at Christ, okay? Um, I was looking back actually at my notes, and about a year ago when we did the Back to Basics series, I actually preached a very similar sermon to this. I was thinking, man, this seems really familiar. Well, it's because I've already preached it, so sorry, it's somewhat repeat. But I, I, I have a different emphasis that God has put on my heart this time around as we look at what we're being built into be. And that is that I want us to not just focus on what the church is. 
But I want us to sit, focus on what the church is because of Christ being our head, because of us being in him. Basically, I'm saying look at Jesus to find out who we are, and that's what we're going to be doing. This, um, this, this section where he talks about um, the Jew, the Gentile, the circumcision, the uncircumcision, the alienation from the commonwealth of Israel, this, this is kind of hard for us to maybe identify with in one sense because we're 2,000 plus years away from this, really even more than that. Um, and it's hard for us to wrap our mind around what this enmity was between these two people. But it was very common. It would be very um, prevalent to the Ephesians. Essentially, if you were a Jew, you are a chosen people. You are one of God's, uh, you know, he, he chose you to make his name known on earth. So you are, you're the cream of the crop, they would think. That's kind of how they looked at it. We are better than everyone else because God picked us out of all the peoples on the earth. That's not necessarily what God had in mind, but that's usually what was happening. Um, and, and, and so God had chosen to use them to glorify his name. They felt really good about that. And um, as a result, also, just, just uh, following the, um, like the law and, and the way that their lives would be structured would be very different than a Gentile. Like, they would follow all these things. They would have kind of a, a distinct brand by being a Jew, by following the moral law of the Old Testament. Whereas a Gentile would say, I don't get it. I don't know why you're doing that. I'm just this way. So there was this, this um, animosity between the two people. And um, God, uh, what Paul is starting to dive into here, and he's going to carry on looking at this in chapter 3, is he's saying the miracle of the cross is that God took those two and he just, he wiped the slate clean. He made one new man. There is no more division between those two. As Gentiles, like I said, everyone in this room predominantly um, is a Gentile for the most part. Maybe you've got some Jewish blood in you, but most of us are Gentile, all right? And, um, and we come, I think we just kind of take for granted this. I don't want to lightly look over the fact that we are adopted in. I think that's a really big deal. It was a really big deal back then. And maybe that's testament to the effectiveness of the gospel for 2,000 years, that, that we take that for granted. But I, I praise God for that. Take a moment, pause, thank God for that when you see that, when you see these things. Because as Gentiles, we're adopted in and we're part of this. But um, as I was looking at this, I was thinking, well, what's the connection point to us? How do we apply that? Is this just something in the past? And I was thinking about how similar this can be to, um, to many of us that have been raised in the church. So again, think about what made the Jews special. They, uh, they followed the law. They had a distinct life pattern. They looked differently to the world because they, they followed the law of God. And many of us who have been raised in the church, um, and we've certain morality and certain viewpoints and worldviews, we've just lived with our whole life, and we look different, and we think different, and, and the way we think can be different. And if we're not careful, that same kind of arrogance the Jews had can, can really sneak in with us. And we can, in the same way, start to look at all the world as being Gentiles and, and, and corrupt in their thinking. And actually, Paul, as you go throughout this book, he starts to make similar correlations. He starts to talk about unsaved as being like Gentiles. In chapter 4 and stuff, in 5, he talks about them as being Gentiles according to this world. So it's not that far reaching out of Ephesians even to look at that. But my point is, as we come to Christ, no matter how long you've been in Christ, don't think of your calling 
of who God has made you into be as making you anything special. Just because you're chosen and, and you're included in this, this body of Christ doesn't make you any more special than the Gentiles of the world. And that is the whole point that he's saying here. In Christ, we are all one. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for 30 years or six months. You are all one. You are all equal in Christ. Why? Because Christ is one. It's that simple. It's nothing deep. It's he's one person, so we are one person. So in the same kind of aspect, um, as the Jews and Gentiles find common ground, they become one in all nationalities and genders and whatever our backgrounds and everything, we all become one in Christ. And that's all throughout the New Testament, the same thing. But I, what I'm trying to do is, again, um, point our eyes to Christ. If we look at him and we see who he is, then it's going to change our view of this. Now, as we do that, I've got to figure out, my pages got out of order here. Boy, I've done that before, and it's made an interesting sermon. <laughs> I actually made it work once, and it was confusing for everyone. All right, so looking at Christ, that's what we're, that's what we're at. Okay, so he is one. And, and if we're going to look at what we are together, if we're going to look at what the church is, we first look at our head. So it starts by looking at him and saying, okay, well, if, if we are in Christ, and if we are one, and he is seated on the throne or whatever, we start to ask questions like, okay, well, who is he? What is he? What is he excited about? What is he busy with? What is his heart? Are we running a separate agenda from Christ? Is Christ up there just saying, okay, you're the church, go make me happy? Or are we truly his body? Are we doing what he wants to be doing on earth? When you go to the scripture, are you trying to discern what is the will of the Lord for my life or what is the will of the Lord for the world? And how am I part of that? I've been thinking about just the implications of this of how I pray and how many times I come to God and say, God, this is my will, make it work. I think it's in line with yours, so make it work. As opposed to my first prayer being, God, what is your will in this situation? And how can I ask correctly, accordingly? Line my heart up with yours. What do you, how do you see this situation? This person's been suffering a long time. How do you view that? And how should I even pray? This, this prayer's been unanswered, and I don't know which way to go. This wall is in front of me, and I'm not sure how you view that. So show me. That should be our first prayer as we come to God, is asking for his heart in these situations. We look to Christ. We see where he is. And just like we looked at before, this aspect of um, moving on from the cross, if Christ is raised from the dead, we also shouldn't be living in, in sin and in things that took us to the grave in the first place. If he is raised, then we should also be raised with him. Now, as we go throughout this, um, this chapter 2, um, I noticed one word, at least in my translation, which is ESV that I use, that came up over and over and over. And it's the same one that we've already talked about a couple times. One man, we are one in him. Animosity is broken down. But if you really start looking, at least, again, in my translation, there was a lot of references to one that kept showing up. So if you look at this, um, in verse 14, we see that he made us one. That's kind of what we just talked about. One new man uh, in place of the two. We'd recon we're reconciled to God in one body through the cross. 
We have access in one spirit to the Father. Citizens of the house, I'm kind of stretching this one a bit, but citizens of the household of God, it's singular. Um, Also, you know, he talks about structure, it's singular. Temple, it's singular. Dwelling place are all singular. I still think it's the same principle. It's the ones throughout here. Paul's making a very distinct point. There's only one, so there can't be many. So what does that mean for us? We're a singular entity, and we're growing together. Um, the, the, the interesting thing is, as, as a church, we are all individuals. We all have separate personalities and backgrounds and styles and different things that we bring, different uh, nationalities and, and just world histories even that we bring to the table. And so we are all individuals. And last week, I encourage you, again, to look at what your individual identity is in Christ when you look at Christ, you, you find your own identity. Who am I? It's tied to Christ. But this is where we take it to as a group, we have an identity. As a, as a corporate body, we have an identity, and that is one. And that's why Paul turns this and starts focusing so much on you all are one. Um, there's something about it as, as we look at this that I think it's rooted in the Trinity, the fact that God is three persons, Three distinct persons with, with emotions and, and characters, characteristics that make them distinct, and yet they are one. And Jesus himself, um, when he was on earth, John 10, 30, said, I and the Father are one. He also prayed, as we know in, um, in chapter 17 of John, that we would be one. And then here in Ephesians 2, he says we have access in one spirit to the Father. So I really believe that God's heart in this is that we are one because he is one. There's nothing new or profound about that. It's just a reminder I know for us. We've talked about that in the past, but it's really exciting, I think, to look at because together that is our identity. Um, I tried to explain to Courtney in doing the artwork, I said, I want you to, to draw something that's, uh, that's a building, like show that we're a building and we're all in it. And um, she did this, and if you, if you can't look at it in your bulletin, I mean, it's just, she took the time, I think, I'm guessing she went through the directory and wrote down everyone's name in it, which I just thought was really, a, a, probably took a lot of time. But just, it was a beautiful picture. It's a really good one, I'm going to save, because she took and wrote all our names and how, as Oak Grove, we build up one body. But it's a really good illustration for you guys to see of just how, in Christ, Though we're all individuals, we make up one building. And this is the whole focus of what we're looking at. As we look down towards um, the latter half of chapter 2, he talks about this. You're no longer strangers and aliens, fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. And here it is, in whom the whole structure, that's, that's us in this sense, being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. You're being built together into a dwelling place by God's Spirit. And the exciting thing is, this is for us as Oak Grove. It also is for us as a global church. And in the sense that we're all building blocks of one body here, one building, Oak Grove itself is one building block in the worldwide scheme of that that great temple. So, if we're going to look at that, and we're going to look at our identity as being this building, this one that Christ is the one building, that he is the head of, that he's the top of, that he is the one that um, we're built around. 
then it comes down to, um, as I think about identity, what are we known for? What is um, the church around the globe known for? But specifically, and for today, what is Oak Grove known for? Because that's, I mean, that ties right into identity, right? If you want to be a body that's known for something, what is, what is it known for? So there's a few things I was thinking that we could be known for. Obeying him. Are we, are we um, a people that, when people look at Oak Grove, they say, oh, that's a people that obey the Lord or follow the Lord? Are we known for abstaining from evil? Are we known for what we're against predominantly? Are we known for our mutual love for one another? Or even the good works that we've just read about? Is Oak Grove known? All these things are really good things. And, and, and we're not gonna, I'm not saying that they're bad. But I think there's one thing that's even more predominant that we need to be known for as a body. And I would pray that the church around the globe is known for. And that is whether we are a people that delights in God, truly delights in Him, is truly satisfied in Him. If there's anything God has been pounding into my head this last year, it's been this. Do I delight in the Father? And last week we talked about that a little bit. We talked about the fact that there's no greater way for you to glorify God than actually delighting in Him. I mean, he talks about how sacrifices and everything mean nothing to Him if our heart isn't attached, but our heart being attached means delighting in Him, actually finding Him satisfying, actually enjoying Him, not because you're supposed to, because you see Him for who He is. The church has to be a people that are known as ones that delight in him. Why? Because the son delights in the father. And we are in him. This whole thing of our identity is in him. Look at him. The son finds excitement and joy and full satisfaction in the father. And the father finds satisfaction and joy as he looks at the son. It's that, it's that thing. How can we say that we are the church? and not enjoy him. This is truly the testimony of what Christ's body here on earth will look like, a people who are satisfied in God above everything else. Friends, it's the difference of being a temple and a prison. I mean, think about that. A temple is a place where you praise God, you love God, you dwell, you delight, you honor him. But a prison is one where you come and you just do it because you're supposed to. And they look very similar sometimes from the outside, but I really am afraid that the church in America has become very much prisons where, where we walk through the door and we honor God and our youth are seeing right through it. They say, that's a prison. I don't want to be trapped in that. You're supposed to live this way. You, you're supposed to carry on that morality. Well, I, I don't want to do that. How different would it be if they walked through the door and said, wait, you want to live godly lives? Wow, why? Oh, you know him? What does that mean? That's the difference. That is what the church has to be known for. If we aren't satisfied him, in him, we will just look like a prison. Now, all those other things we looked at, they're all good. Obedience, following Christ, abstaining from evil, Mutual love for each other, good works, they're all good. They're in the New Testament. But it's like the car to have a horse. If, you don't, if you're not doing that out of a love for God, if you're not doing it because you've seen him as better, then 
it's just going to be it's just going to be works works that you're trying to do to earn grace which we already learned about last week is not a good idea it's not even possible the grace we have is a gift and we look to god and we live in him um, accordingly um, in everything that I, that I say, I, I want to try to point you guys back to Scripture. The, the, this principle of um, being satisfied Him, like what I said, you know, that we, um, being satisfied Him is the greatest way to glorify Him. It's hard to, to find like an exact verse for that because really it's, it's kind of the whole Bible. I'm going back to the garden of why we were created. We were created for fellowship, to be walking with God, satisfied in Him, enjoying Him in the garden, and then um, you know, all throughout the Old Testament, there's all these things, but some verses that I found that kind of talk about this, um, oh boy, those are small. Sorry. I'll read them to you. It always looks bigger on my screen at home. Um, Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Psalms 37, 4. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. Psalm 32. Sing for joy to the Lord, you righteous ones. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, Psalm 64. Oh, I'm moving forward. I'll keep reading here. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth, Psalm 100. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say it, Philippians 4, 4. God wouldn't command us to enjoy him if he wasn't enjoyable. Maybe it sounds really simple to say, but I got to say it because I need to hear that. He doesn't tell, that just doesn't make sense. For him to say, come into my presence with joyful singing. And you come and, okay, i got to turn on the joy thing. All right. You know, maybe sometimes we do. We do that when we sing. But that's not what he's interested in. He actually wants us to enjoy him because he's enjoyable. And if we don't see that, that's where we need to start. That's where our hearts need to start. That's where we, we have to come to the point where we, we ask him to say, God, be honest with him. He knows your heart. If you open the word and you just say, God, I'm just, I'm not finding you satisfying. Tell him. He'll say, I know. You haven't seen me yet. And let him lead you through these. Ask him to show you as you look at each passage in the scriptures to be really just to see him, to enjoy him, to be satisfied him. This is the foundation for what we're going to be as a church. Uh, but, like I said, it doesn't mean that good works don't come out of it. So I, I kind of want to circle back here quickly. Because there's a passage over in Hebrews chapter 12, uh, or chapter 10, that we, I think we, we often look at. It's this one in Hebrews 10, 24. You can turn there if you want or not. But this aspect of, um, uh, usually we use verse 25. It says, do not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. Encourage one another daily all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's usually the verse we use to say, you need to be in church. At least you need to be in fellowship somewhere. You need to be fellowshiping with believers, and that's true. But verse 24 comes before it, and it's actually part of the same sentence. It says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. The point is, these good works that God prepared beforehand that come out of us loving him, that come out of us being satisfied in him, they are encouraged out of one another when we're together. And that's why there's this kind of link in my mind between these two, the good works that we see in, in chapter 2, verse 10, and here. These good works 
Um, they're not just something that we do on our own. They're linked directly to this, this aspect of enjoying him. So if, if I were to put the two things that I just talked about together, I would say this. When we come together, the way that we stir each other up to good works is to encourage one another to be satisfied in him. When you walk through the door, if, if all you see is a bunch of people that are living righteous lives, it might stir you up to some good works, but dare I say, they might not be the good works that God prepared for you. That's pretty bold to say. Another way of saying it is you might just become religious without actually walking with Christ. But if you walk through the door and you see a people, man, they love God, and look at how their life has changed. They love God, and look at how they parent their kids. They love God, look at, that really changed the way that they dealt with that business transaction. That's going to encourage you. That's going to stir you up to good works. That's going to stir you up to follow him. And that, on your half, you need to walk through the door and be that example. You need to, that should be ever on our lips as we talk with one another of, have you seen him? I was reading the word of God and I, I just really saw him speaking to me in this way, like I, I saw that he's revealed to be this way, or I saw this characteristic of him, or this last week I was just really gripped by, by the concept that he is rich in mercy. What do you think about that? That is mutually encouraging each other, stirring one another up to good works. The good works are going to come out of that conversation because inevitably you start talking about that, you're going to start saying, if he's so rich in mercy, where does he want to spend it? we got to do something. Let's, let's get out. You, get, you free Tuesday? And you fill in the gap. It, that, I made that up on the fly, but like, I, I hope you can just see the, the, the point that as we encourage each other to look at Christ, it should stir us on to good works. Um, there's a whole aspect of this as we look at what we are being made to be that's really exciting that... Um, I thought about going down on as a path, but in the interest of time, I'm not going to go there. But if you guys want um, just kind of a side study, it, it doesn't, it, it relates to Ephesians chapter 2, but I'll just have you write it down. Look at uh, a correlation between Ephesians chapter um, 2 and, or these last 2, 11 through 22, and Revelation 21, verses 9 through 27. It'd be kind of a fun little study. Um, it really just kind of fast-forwards in time, and you see a lot of similarities between these two books as we look at what we're going to be. But the main thing I want us to take away today, that's like a physical thing. We look at the New Jerusalem, and it's a picture of, of the church. But the main thing I want us to see today that we are being built into be is a dwelling place of God. A dwelling place of God. A place where God comes, He is glorified, he is living and active. His Holy Spirit is working in and through us as we love one another, as we love the world, but more than anything, as we love him. So that is, that is the whole point of what a dwelling place, a structure is to be here. Now, just um, as we kind of come towards the latter part of this here, uh, last week I had said in every passage we need to be able to look at it and we need to see what does this tell us about God. And so I thought as we close out chapter 2 and um, just all that we've seen here, I would bring out a few highlights. And again, these should be serving towards that same goal we talked about. When you walk out of here, 
you should be able to look at God and say, wow, did you see him today? That was awesome. You guys all looked at that cloud. You saw the thunder, the lightning, just the power in that, and you went, wow, did you see that? We should have the same view when we look at God in the scripture. So what are some things that we've seen of God in chapter two that should just make us go, wow. First off, he desires to be one, just like he is one. Father, I pray that they may be one as I am one, Jesus prayed. And we see his heart being expressed here. That should cause us to, to just glorify in him. In spite of the wrath we looked at that we deserve in chapter 2, that, that early part when it said that we are children of wrath by nature, in spite of that, that we deserve that, we also see that he's a preacher of peace. And he desires peace for those that are far off. In the context of this specific one today, he was talking about Jews and Gentiles being brought together, but you see his heart. His heart is for unity, for us all to be one. And he brought us that were far off in. He wants us to have fellowship with the Father again, verse 18. That's why he gave us his spirit in the first place. A few contractors in the room will like this one, that he, the spirit specifically, is a builder. And he's not done with the work that he started. That's in verse 22. You were being built together into a dwelling place for God. It's also in Philippians 1.16. He who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. Finally, he delights to dwell with man. Why do I know that? Because God wouldn't dwell somewhere where he doesn't delight to be. And again, like I said before, the Father delights in the Son. He says that all throughout the New Testament. We see it many times. And if we are in Christ, then he delights in us because we're in him. I know and I realize that this aspect of being satisfied in God is difficult to wrap your mind around. I know because I'm wrestling with it. I'm not an expert in this matter. It sounds good here on Sunday morning, but it seems abstract when you walk out the door. Uh, I get that. It's hard to figure out how to see and enjoy God on a daily basis. I would just encourage you to take it slow. Take these things. Here's five. I mean, you got five days, you can have the weekend off. Take one a day. Go slow, just one. Focus for a day on what it means for God to want to have fellowship with the Father. What does it mean that the Spirit is a builder and is building up the church? And you guys can do it on your own. These are only five things in here. Pick another one. Pick one thing that you see of God and chew on it for a day or a week. Pray about it. But make sure that by the time you're done, it somehow results in you telling how you think about it. Pray, pray to him and say, man, God, I just... I really delight in the fact that you are this way or that way. Practice it. This is how we are going to learn to be a people who truly find satisfaction and joy in him. And I will say this. If there is anything in your life that distracts you from that, cut it out. Because there's a war going on and it doesn't want you to be satisfied in him. If it's too much for you to say, I'm chucking it for forever, I'm burning my something, or I'm throwing the TV out, don't do that. Don't get radical. You'll end up getting frustrated. But say, for this week, 
I'm, I'm just going to dedicate this time that I, I previously dedicated to thinking about this problem or to focusing on this thing that I want or to this aspect. Maybe it's a lunch break at work. Maybe it's uh, a time at night on the TV or the computer. Just take that time and say, for a week, I'm just going to focus on these attributes of God. I'm just going to look at them. The last thing I want to leave you with on that aspect is the role of faith. Faith, it said, um, someone smarter than me said, faith reckons what is already there as being true. And what that just means is, uh, at least this is what it means to me, faith is looking forward to the fact that one day you are going to be satisfied with God in heaven. If you are his child and you've trusted in Christ as your Savior, one day you're going to spend eternity with him, and he will be the only thing that satisfies you. And you're going to be so excited in his presence. You have to let your heart draw a connection to that point when your mind doesn't have it yet. Draw a string there. Attach it. That is faith. And your mind <laughs> will catch up. But right now, that is what faith does. It looks forward. It says, all these things right now that I can't see, that I can't understand, that are distracting me, I am going to fix my soul on the point that someday in eternity, I will be completely satisfied in him. And I'm going to hold on to that. That is what the role of faith is in this case. To close out, I want to go back to the passage that Bill um, read at the start. And if you'll all turn there with me, 2 Corinthians, or sorry, yeah, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 14. Think about these verses. Everything in them is what we've talked about for the last three weeks. This, I couldn't give a better summary. I was tempted almost to just read these today and just call it quits. Because what he says here is everything from the unity, um, from being reconciled into one body, from um, being the love of God compelling us, it's all here. So I'm going to read this as we close today. Verse 14 of chapter 5 in 2 Corinthians. For the love of Christ controls us. Some of your versions say compels us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of a reconciliation. Because of this, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not 
to receive the grace of God in vain. Started with, in, in the first week on this, he made him to be no sin, to be sin for us. But now we see the latter half of that, so that we might become the righteousness of God. That is all that we're talking about in this. Let's pray. God, I pray you would make us ambassadors of this. What a glorious message. We praise you and love you for your heart as is explained and, and given to us in Ephesians chapter 2 and just all throughout your Bible. Thank you for what you show us of us, and I pray you would open our eyes to see you more clearly. We know we're not satisfied in you, not always, and I pray that you would just just excite our hearts towards that and by faith to see what you're going to do in us one day. Build us, God. Build us into that dwelling place, that place where we can glorify you, be satisfied in you, and enjoy you. In your name we pray. Amen.